And now, an ad from Dad. <clears throat> All right. Save money on car insurance when you bundle home and auto with Progressive. Can I take these off? All right. What is this? This looks good. Wow. That's what, man. Where did you get this? I'm talking to you with the hair. Yeah, where did you get this? It's good stuff. That's solid. That's not veneer. That's solid stuff. Progressive can't save you from becoming your parents, but we can save you money when you bundle home and auto. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company affiliates and other insurers. Discounts not available in all states or situations. Blog Talk Radio. Welcome to Creating a Family. Talk about infertility and adoption. We're a weekly radio show podcast, and to make sure that you automatically hear about each episode, sign up for our RSS feed, either at iTunes or on the radio page of our site, creatingafamily.org slash radio, or you could go use any of your uh, podcast directories that, that you prefer. Today's show is going to be on donor insemination, who's donating and who's receiving. I'm Don Davenport, the director of Creating a Family. We're a nonprofit providing education, resources, and support for both infertility and adoption, and you can find us online at creatingafamily.org. The Creating a Family radio show is underwritten by our corporate sponsor, can't speak today, corporate sponsor, Faring Pharmaceutical. And I am really proud to announce that in recognition of National Cancer Survivor Day, this week, Faring Pharmaceutical announced that it will donate $1 million to the Alliance for Fertility Preservation to promote the education of patients diagnosed with cancer to enable them either to make better decisions regarding preserving their fertility at the onset right after they've been uh, diagnosed and before they start treatment, or to better understand their opportunities to manage infertility after treatment. So anyway, I'm just very happy to announce that because it's a great organization and a great cause. Hey, we here at Creating a Family could use your help. The single most important thing you could do to help Creating a Family is to rate this podcast on iTunes. So if you've got iTunes on your computer or your phone, just type in the words Creating a Family and then rate it. And if you've got an extra minute, we would really appreciate a written comment. So thank you. I blog on topics of interest to those involved with either infertility or adoption three times a week. A recent one you might find interesting, although to be honest it's not really directly related to either infertility or adoption, is yesterday's blog about the uh, the brouhaha over the, the Cheerios commercial featuring an interracial couple. If you've not heard about it, you do need to read this blog. I mean, honestly, it's 2013 and we're still talking about this issue. Really? Anyway, join in and add your thoughts to the really great discussion that's going on in the comments section, which, again, you can find both the blog and the comments at creatingafamily.org slash blog. This show, as well as all the resources provided by Creating a Family, could not happen without the generous support of our gold sponsors, including Fairfax Cryobank. Fairfax has been a leader in sperm donation for over 20 years and is dedicated to supplying updated, verified, and accurate medical and personal information on their donors. We also have Nightlight Christian Adoptions. They are the pioneers of the first embryo adoptions slash embryo donation program, and they call that program Snowflakes. You can get more information on their website about the Snowflakes Embryo Adoption Program. As you just heard, we're a nonprofit, and one of the ways we pay our bills is through our wonderful sponsors, our gold sponsors as well as our other sponsors believe in our mission of bringing you unbiased, accurate information and supporting you on whatever your path is to achieving parenthood. One way you can help us is by supporting those who support us. So 
please go to the Make Your First Stop, the Cleaning a Family database, which you can find on the service provider page of our site. We've got a list of uh, infertility clinics, uh, sperm banks, uh, infertility therapists, uh, egg donations, and a whole host of others that we think would be help you might uh, be helpful for you on your journey. You can search by a lot of uh, criteria, locations, service pro- services provided, and such on that uh, database. Again, our website service provider page. Today on the Creating a Family Show, we're going to be talking about donor insemination, who's donating and who's receiving. The use of donor sperm and sperm bank has changed over the years. The men donating have also changed. We will talk about all of these changes with Dr. Michelle Otati. I screw that. You're getting, I Michelle, <laughs> pronounce your last name for me. Otti. It's Otti. Otti. Okay. Thank you. John, I'm sorry. I can't really hear you. Okay. There you uh, go. Sorry, You're back. Every, I'm sorry, everybody. We are having major technical problems today on the Creating a Family show. So let me apologize up front. It has one, been one of those I hate technology days. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, let me go back. Michelle Adi is the laboratory director and the director of operations for both Fairfax Cryobank and Cryogenic Laboratories. Welcome, Dr. Adi, or as I'm lucky to call you, Michelle, to Creating a Family. Thank you so much, and thanks so much for having me on today. I'm really excited. Good. And, Michelle, if for some reason uh, we uh, you lose my feed, please say something. Our sound guys, are uh, they're showing everything fine right now. So I okay. appreciate it. Feel free to say something. And our audience is, is a wonderful audience, and they're going to uh, – in fact, somebody – the other day, we uh, about two months ago, uh, I kept making a, a screw-up on the show, and I had a couple of people email saying how charming they thought it was. Now, <laughs> I'm not sure they're going to think it's charming if we have uh, sound problems, uh, So, and I don't want our technical guys not to keep working on this, but still. Anyway, so okay. I want to – hey, and, and, and uh, Michelle and I go way back, and every time we talk, we talk forever. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I am really looking forward. Uh, we meet up at the – well, gosh, we meet up at AS, the American Society of Reproductive Medicine Conference every mm-hmm. year. And, uh, you know, in addition to being both the laboratory uh, director and director of operations for Fairfax and cryogenics, uh, you – cryogenic laboratories, you also are a, a researcher and, of course, as most people who listen to this show know, I'm a research geek. So we, we always talk about that. And, and then I guess, of course, you know, Fairfax has been a long-term sponsor of us. So anyway, for whatever reason, whenever we meet up, we have so much to talk about. So uh, I am really looking forward to it. Um, so let's start by talking about the the changing faces of who is using donated sperm. Uh, and then we're going to move to talk about uh, later about the changing faces of who's donating. But, but let's okay. first talk about uh, uh, who is using. And, and one of the things that, that uh, you do, or Fairfax does, I guess, or, or Fairfax sponsors you in doing, is uh, you do an annual survey. Is it of both the users and the donators or, or just the donators? Well, so what what we've done in the past couple of years is we do an annual satisfaction survey. And, and a couple of years back, because I do, like you, have a research background, um, I got really interested in in finding out some of the statistics about the recipients who are purchasing our donor sperm. And so we have about four or five years' worth of really good data about our recipients. And that survey is sent out typically via email. Um, it's also posted on our website. And it's an opt-in survey. 
So it's obviously not everyone that's using the donor sperm, but it is um, an opt-in of the recipients who have chosen to answer these survey questions. The donor surveys, um, we have data on our donors, obviously, from the beginning, but the, the surveys asking more of the emotional and psychological questions, that is more recent. Um, I work with Christina Boyd, who is our site manager in our Philadelphia office. She and I have um, put together the survey for the donors, and we've done that. Uh, we started that last year, and so I have some good information for you about that as well. Well, let's start with the recipients. Sure. Okay, in, years, in years past, and, and, and I think it's really a fair, uh, fairly a long time ago, the primary utilizers of donated sperm were heterosexual couples with male infertility. Correct. Uh, when about uh, did that change? Um, well, as you said, it really did start out, uh, in donor insemination really did start out in humans because of male infertility issues. And that, um, the first insemination was in the 1950s, and obviously we've grown a lot since then. Fairfax has been around since the early um, to mid-80s, and we've been providing donor sperm since then. Um, as you said, the majority of the first users were heterosexual couples where there was an infertility issue or the risk of passing a genetic disease on through the male side. And so um, I would say that in the, the shift in users really, although it, it began to change a little bit in the 80s, it was really in the 90s, late 90s, early 2000s when it became, um, there was a major shift in, in use and popularity grew um, among the single women community and among lesbians building their families. You know, I think that the advent of ICSI, intercytoplasmic sperm injection, was the uh, single largest factor. Uh, would you agree with that? That allowed uh, men with very low sperm count and and uh, and, and even poor sperm, sperm quality uh, to still go through IVF. Uh, is that what you uh, think is the... Uh, yes, absolutely. And, and that also affected um, the number of heterosexual couples seeking donor sperm because when ICSI was put into place, men with, as you said, incredibly low sperm counts were then able to use their own sample to have a biological child rather than having to use the, um, the go the donor route. So ICSI did change the face of reproductive biology. You know, but what's interesting here is that from our audience, the Creating a Family audience, we still see a lot of interest from couples with male infertility mm -hmm. in exploring donor sperm. Now, I don't really know uh, whether or not they, what they eventually do, but there is a lot of interest in donor sperm. And I think it's because of the cost of IVF issues. I mean, that's usually what people are, and this is all anecdotal. Right. Do you see that as well, or is that just kind of a peculiarity of our audience? No, I think that's uh, that's a pretty accurate statement. Um, you know, when I'm looking at our recipient population, again, the survey information is opt-in, so it's it's people we're sort of pre-selecting for people who are willing to share their stories. But what we're seeing is that about 30% of the people that were responding to our surveys marked that male infertility or a male genetic issue was the reason they were coming to us to look for donor sperm. So, you know, it, I would say plus or minus 5, 10%, that sounds about right to me. Um, about 70% of the people who took the survey over the years, and this number has grown, um, 
said that it was because there was no male partner. So obviously that's one of two things. You're a single woman looking to build a family without partnering with a male or you're a lesbian or lesbian couple that, that obviously doesn't have a male partner involved in that. And you don't have a breakout between knowing which is which. No, I do. I do, actually. So 60% of our respondents identify as heterosexual. About 40% respond um, as lesbian. And the breakdown is about 30% of our users are single. About um, 40% say that they're married and 27% committed relationship. Now, it's hard because we offer both of those as options because, as you know, marriage equality hasn't yet reached all 50 of our great states. It's only 12. So <laughs> not even half. No, no, only 12. <laughs> um, so we do offer those breakdowns. What we're able to extrapolate from the data is that it's really about a third, a third, and a third of heterosexual, married, um, a third single women, and a third lesbian couples. Got it. Okay. That's interesting. Uh, and uh, I, I, we certainly also have uh, hear from a lot of single women. Uh, yes. And, and I... Again, this is anecdotal, but it seems like that is a growing uh, a growing segment of of people who are interested. Any any ideas uh, as to why that is? Well, I think you know, and we've seen we've seen that as well in terms of the the users on our side that the single population is definitely increasing over time. There's definitely a significantly higher number of single women building a family. Um, without partnering now than there was even a decade ago. Um, you know, I think, you know, we all see the articles that come out, and, and there are some amazing resources, resources online for single mothers by choice, but a lot of this has to do with women trying to establish themselves in their career before they are going to, you know, take that break to build their family and dedicate some time to, you know, their pregnancy and having their child. Um, I also think, you know, it has to do with the empowerment of a woman being able to utilize her resources and build a family without having to wait for that perfect partner, which for some people doesn't happen until a little bit later. Yeah, I think you're right. We've actually uh, had a lot of discussion uh, both on the Creating a Family Facebook support group as well as I've blogged on this subject uh, a fair amount, and that's pretty much exactly what we're hearing. We also see uh, that, which is, I think, totally understandable as well, that especially for our, well, well especially for the single women, that uh, they tend to be older. So the, the hard mm -hmm. part is that they're often facing a female fertility issues in addition to not having sperm. Right, right. Yeah. Do you see that in, in your, I don't know if your survey is, is teasing that, that much detail out. Uh, we do. Um, yeah, we, we do. We do ask about the ages of our users. And, and just before I get into the details of that, one of the things I was going to mention is a lot of um, our data is from the surveys, but we're also able to draw some data from the Fairfax Family Forums, which are um, set up online, and there are different threads in the forums. And so for the there's a thread, for example, single women who are trying to build families. And so we've been able to sort of pull out some data from that and, and more, more interestingly, personal comments and personal experiences. And so that's where I'm really basing my comments about the rise in, in single motherhood. Um, you know, we do see that generally our, our recipients, regardless of their, 
their situation, whether they're in a lesbian relationship, if they're a single mother um, or a single woman trying to build their family, we're seeing that these women are slightly older. And part of that also comes from the fact that our population tends to be uh, very well educated. The majority of our recipients have at least a college degree and something like 40 some percent of our recipients have a graduate level degree. So women are, you figure in your mid to late twenties, by the time you're finishing your education, trying to establish your career. And then, you know, by the time you're established, you're in your early thirties, we know that female fertility starts to drop in your mid-30s, and by the time you're 40, you have about a 5% chance each month of achieving pregnancy. So, you know, we're seeing that a lot of our single users are between 35 and 45. Yeah, that's that would be, again, I don't have, uh, uh, we don't do a survey, but uh, I will certainly say that from anecdotally in our audience, it's exactly what we would see. And usually... Actually, I would say almost a little. We don't see too many of the 35 who are single. Uh, now, yes, for our heterosexual couples who are interested in Dennisburg, they tend to be younger. Mm-hmm. Um, it, we it, see the same thing. Yeah, it's uh, it's yeah, and I think it makes you know a complete sense because one of the things that uh, we had a discussion. Um, can't remember now if it was on the blog or on the creating a family support group, uh, but uh, the Facebook support group, but. Uh, women were saying that they, because the question came up as to why they were 38, 39, 40, and, and just now mm-hmm. utilizing donor sperm. And as one woman, you know, having a child through donor sperm, if it wasn't her first choice, therefore it, she wanted to wait, and she felt like, right. good. you know, I also think it will be hard to date with a, an infant, you know, and right. so, you yeah. know, from a practical yeah. standpoint. And uh, it was kind of, you know, the criticism of people saying, well, why did you wait? Because she was, uh, a number of women were uh, uh, experiencing infertility issues, uh, female infertility issues. And so, anyway, so, yeah, I mean, I get that completely. Yeah, and we have seen, we've seen those discussions in our forums about, you know, I was I was dating a guy, I thought it was going to go really well, I thought we were on that track, and then, you know, invariably something happens and, it, and the relationship fell apart. and people just they say you know what i'm not going to wait i i'm in a place where i can do this financially i can do this emotionally i have a good support system and there's not really a reason not to do this yeah and and if becoming a parent uh is a top priority for you yes you know one of the things that one of the messages we are trying to get out is that don't wait i mean there is right. and you've got to balance it of course between both your career, whether you're both emotionally or financially able to do mm-hmm. it alone, and also with, you know, where you stand in your relationships. But, uh, yeah, fascinating. Yeah. All right, now, what else do you ask in your survey of recipients? What other uh, interesting things can you tell us? You know, part of it is there's a lot of talk now about the type of donor you're going to use. Are you going to use an anonymous donor? Are you going to use an ID option donor? Are you going to look for a known donor? Um, We do ask all of our recipients if they've considered using someone they know before coming to donor sperm. And interestingly, about 40% of the recipients um, that respond to the survey say that they did, in fact, at one time or another, consider a known donor, a friend, a relative of, of someone they know, 
um, you know, they've considered that, but only about 5% of them actually try to go through cycles using a known donor. Um, I will say, as an aside, if you do proceed with a directed or known donor, you should work with a sperm bank to ensure that all of the infectious disease testing and everything is good so that you're using a safe sample. Um, but that that's really interesting and has always been interesting to me that people do consider that. Um, but I think there are complications in using a known donor over a donor from a sperm bank because you need to then work with a lawyer to make sure that you have contracts in place that clearly outline the responsibility of every party. And you want to make sure you understand the laws in your state. And so working with a sperm bank, you don't have to worry about those things because the donor is contra contracted with us. Whereas working with a known donor, he would be contracted with you. So I always thought that was an interesting piece of information. Yeah, that, that is. Let me just put in a, a standard statement I always make when we talk about um, using a lawyer. It is very important that you select a lawyer that specializes in reproductive law. Yes. This is not a generalist or a general family law practitioner type of issue. It's far too important. Um, on... Uh, our website, we have extensive resources for how to find an attorney which specializes in reproductive law. You can find that under, uh, go to the hor blue horizontal menu at the top, hover over the word infertility, drop down menu appears, click on resources, then click on how to find a reproductive law attorney. Uh, go ahead. Now, what, what are some of the, I, I do know that people uh, talk about using uh, a, a known donor. Uh, some of the one of the complications is the issue of of what role that person will have in yes. your children's life, um, and that could be a blessing, or it could be something that you that that person wants to be known to the children, and perhaps even wants to play something of a parental role. Uh, but that is something that should be discussed extensively, and perhaps even discussed with a mental health professional who could help yes. both sides kind of tease out perhaps what their real expectations are. Um, you, you guys may not. I guess, well, people are, are having their samples tested through Fairfax, or not Fairfax, well, any, any sperm bank, not just for Fairfax, right. but any sperm bank, yeah. Right. Yeah, you. Um, I think that's really important. I, you know, I've done the, um, I've worked with the Equality Forum here, and I'm, I work in our Philadelphia location, and I've participated with our Equality Forum um, panel on LGBT family building in the past, uh, in past years, and there have been some amazing stories that I've gotten to witness through that panel of, of, of directed or known donors that have turned out beautifully, where it's a lesbian couple that uses a good friend and the friend serves the role of sort of an uncle or a male role model mentor in the family, and it has worked out beautifully. And then, of course, you do hear every so often a story that doesn't go as well. Um, you know, but like you said, we know of a couple of reproductive lawyers in the area, and we always recommend to the patients when they come in, the directed or known donors and the recipients, that they work with a reproductive lawyer. And if they don't have somebody in mind, we will refer them. Um, the importance of working with the sperm bank is that through the eyes of the FDA, which is one of the main regulators of sperm banking in this country, the known or directed donor is treated very, very similarly to an anonymous donor. He has to complete a medical history. He has to complete a physical exam and infectious disease testing excuse me, infectious disease testing, um, the whole idea behind those regulations and guidelines is that you are using reproductive materials from a non-sexually intimate partner. And so we want to make sure that the sperm that you're using is safe. 
Yeah, exactly. There are safety issues. And it's complicated asking somebody what their sexual history is, and, and especially depending on your relationship with them. Um, it, it, you may... It, it's complicated. They may not want to tell you uh, their full right. history. And that's and why so, we do. Yeah, <laughs> that's exactly. why we so, ask. <laughs> exactly. So it's kind of good. Okay, another option you talked about, and you call it an ID option. Uh, another way it's often called is an identified uh, uh, option or uh, identified donor where you get uh, information. Um, how, let's talk about that option because we. it's interesting I don't know how many people actually choose it, but we do, when people are uh, both on our discussions as well as people are asking specifically uh, to us here at Creating a Family, we see more interest uh, in the last couple of years in this option than in the past. I don't know whether or not, again, people are actually going through with it, but we do see Mm -hmm. people are, in fact, almost everybody is asking about it now just as to get more information. So first of all, how much information do you get that when it's identified or ID? How much information do you actually get? And I, you could speak for the sperm bank that you work for, uh, okay. but you could also probably speak in general because I know you have contacts with all the major sperm banks. Right. Well, so first, the first thing to, to note is that what we've seen is that there is a population of recipient that feels very strongly about using an anonymous donor, and there's a population that feels very strongly about using an ID donor, and then there's a larger population, about half of the people using donor sperm, states that they're open to either anonymous or ID, but what they're looking for is the bigger picture. They're looking for different qualities in the donor. The people who are valuing the ID donor um, option, it, it, the reason that they're doing that is because they want their child that results from using this donor sperm, this ID option donor sperm, to at some point in the future have the option of contacting that donor. And when you're asking about the information, I'm assuming you're asking what information you get. Um, yeah. As a recipient, you don't actually get contact information. Um, it is the child at the age of 18 that will contact the sperm bank and they'll request contact information for their donor. At Fairfax, we guarantee that we are going to give you um, the donor's last known contact information. Um, I say that with a caveat. What our goal is, is to stay in touch with these donors through annual medical updates that we've set up, um, not just for ID, but our ID and anonymous donors. And through keeping up with the donors every year just to get their annual medical, personal, and contact information updates, we're hoping to maintain an ongoing relationship with these donors. And we've, in fact, seen that happening over the past couple of years since we've set up this annual update system. So when your child will contact the cryobank, when they contact Fairfax when they turn 18 or some point after that, they'll tell us that they want to have contact with their donor. We're then going to reach out to the donor and ask him, what's your preferred contact? Do you want a phone call? Do you want an email? Or sometime in the future, I don't know, do you want a hologram? Whatever the technology is going to be in the future. Um, And what we'll do then is we'll give that back to to the child. If at the time the child's requesting contact, we don't have um he doesn't respond to us immediately, we guarantee that we're going to release information, uh, a name, a phone number, an email address, his last known address, so that, and and the reason we can do that is that the donors themselves have agreed to release that information. We have that documented and on file. It's not the same, as you mentioned, 
Um, the ID programs differ from sperm bank to sperm bank. I really encourage people who are interested in this ID option to do a lot of research and look at the differences in the programs. Some will reach out to the donor, but if he doesn't respond, they won't release information, even though he was purchased as an ID donor, um, which is, you know, that's that's really um, troublesome for the child that throughout their life was told they would have this option in the future. So it's really important for people to do their research and understand the programs at each of the sperm banks. From the research that you have done, uh, from and and uh, and there's not been a huge amount. Uh, and when I say research, I don't mean your specific research. The reading that you've done of the research. Sure. There's not been a huge amount of of really good long-term type research, large studies done on donor-conceived children or donor-conceived people. But uh, have you read any of research which talks about uh, what percentage of donor-conceived people? have an interest in uh, making contact or getting more information about their donor. I can I can imagine a lot of problems with any research doing that because so many of the children have not been actually told. But go ahead. Right, right. So there are a couple of papers that have come um, from a group in California that have looked at a subset of people who have used known donors. Um, and what they're seeing initially is that the numbers are similar to that in the adoption community where it's a, it's a um the off, the the kids are not necessarily asking to contact their donor when they're 18 but maybe when they're a little bit older when they're finishing college or or trying to start building their own family and they yeah. want some medical information and it so far it you know, I don't have the study in front of me, but it was it was definitely a lower number. It was maybe a 20% that they'd seen starting to make those requests. I do think that what we're going to see over time as more people open up and disclose and talk about this openly, I do think we're going to see more requests. I do think that, you know, I can give you some information about, you know, the disclosure that we hear from our recipients, but I do think generally people are planning to or are telling their children that they are donor conceived. And over time, I do think that we're going to see a greater number of them reaching out, even if it's just to have the information. We do, we've also seen that where people are just saying, I just want the information. I don't know if I'm going to contact it. Yeah, I wanted, uh, let me, uh, uh, I wanted to talk about that as far as the uh, people who are telling, but just let me take a moment right now to thank another gold sponsor. It is, as I mentioned, the generous support of all of our gold sponsors that we can bring you this show and all of the resources at Creating a Family. So I'd like to thank now Cryos International. They are a New York sperm bank, which are part of the world's largest international network of sperm banks. They offer donor semen and semen storage services with the ability to ship specimen to more than 65 countries. Uh, Michelle, I wanted to talk with you some because you and I have one of the things that we talk about a lot when we talk is uh, about the idea of, of families uh, disclosing to yes. their children. Um, so I think I'm going to say, since we've talked about it, but let's uh, let me ask anyway. Um, from your surveys that you've done, as well as mm-hmm. uh, the partic- uh, participating in the forum, Fairfax yeah. uh, parent forums, uh, what percentage, roughly, of parents who have uh, used 
conceive their children through donor sperm are telling their children and does it matter if they are part of a heterosexual couple, a single non-lesbian couple? It's a, okay, so it does matter. I'll, I'll say that to begin with. But we're seeing about 70 to 80% of the people saying that they absolutely are sure that they're going to disclose or that they have disclosed. And it does it does vary. Um, in terms of a single a single mother, we're seeing that almost all of them in the high 80s, low 90% plan to or have disclosed. Uh, for lesbian couples, it's, again, in the 75 to 80% range, but they at some point will most likely have to disclose in some way because there's not a male partner there. And the number is a little bit lower. It's about 70% for heterosexual couples. And again, this is the, these numbers have changed over the years. They've increased over the years. So over time, people are definitely uh, moving toward disclosure. Um, we The way that we asked the question in the past was, if you're not planning to disclose why, and those were, um, you were able to write in your reasoning there. And in the heterosexual couples answers, what we were seeing is that generally it was the male partner that was saying that he didn't feel comfortable disclosing that information. Now, I don't think any of this num any of this information is an absolute. This may change with their child's experience. It may change over time for them. Um, you know, it's, it's really interesting to me that in the past, over over a four-year span, the number of people that plan to disclose jumped from somewhere in the average of about 50% to, to an average of about 80%. Um, and, and you and I have talked about this, but I think a lot of that has to do with the topic of donor insemination, of infertility, of, of family building um, in non-traditional ways, becoming more a part of our conversation in society, becoming a part of our pop culture. I think you're right on all of that. And, of course, we've got, uh, you know, TV shows, uh, Brothers mm -hmm. and Sisters, they talked about uh, mm -hmm. uh, Dr. Conceived. I mean, there's TV shows where this is discussed. I think that the uh, uh, prevalence within the uh, LGBT community ha has made a difference. But, and I know that I'm being a bit of a naysayer, but uh, a curmudgeon or whatever. Or, uh, but I also, there has been some research on donor egg that I have found very interesting. And it, uh, if you ask recipients of donor egg, and I don't, not, I don't have the research in front of me, so I don't know the exact percentage, but a, a decent percentage of people say that, yes, they are going to tell. But then when you follow through, the research follows through, what they found out was that, what they mean by telling is is different. Uh, that uh, what uh, families might consider telling is more the medical part. You know, uh, mommy and daddy, or mommy had a uh, a broken part, and so she had to get mm -hmm. help from somebody very special, uh, and that's it. Um, or they talk about the IVF part, uh, mm -hmm. and or, or they leave uh, the the child where they've laid a groundwork, but they don't actually. Now, partly this could also be because the children are not have not don't egg conceived children are you know for the most part still relatively young, so right. it's unclear to me how it's all going to play out. But I am curious to know. I also wonder. I'm curious to know how many uh, people are actually going to follow through. And in specific, I'm thinking of the one-third of, of your recipients that are heterosexual, because I agree with you. I think that uh, when there is no male partner involved, 
I think that it's an easier discussion to have. Right. Um, so I, I don't you know. know. It's, it, I, I think that's in, an interesting question. And what I can say is that in terms of the, the donor sperm, like you said, when you're a single woman or a lesbian couple that's having a child, you, you have to sort of explain where the child came from. There's, you don't really have a choice. Yeah. But I think even in the heterosexual couples that are disclosing this information, they're making it a part of, at least what we found, is that they're making it a part of the child's birth story. So, you know, maybe when the the kid is two or three and you're telling them the story of how they came to be, obviously a two- or three-year-old's not sophisticated enough to understand artificial reproductive technology. But as they get older, right, as they get older, the child is going to have more questions. Very few people in our surveys and and in our recipient population have said that they want to wait. Most, I I think it's something like 70, 80, 96% of our recipients that are disclosing are planning to do it under five because, you know, under five is when kids are really interested in where they came from, when they're seeing different kinds of families. And thankfully, there are more resources. There are some really sweet storybooks and picture books that that show the building of different kinds of families. And I think it makes it a little bit easier. Um, it will be interesting. Yeah. And it will be interesting to see how that how that conversation you know, goes. I, I, one of the statistics that I think is so interesting from our study is we did ask those people who disclosed what was their child's reaction. 77% of the people marked that the kid was neutral, that it was just, oh, okay, it's just part of my story, you know. And mm-hmm. I think that comes from exposing them to their reality at a very young age. It, I agree it normalizes it. It makes it part of their natural experience. You're exactly right. When you're when you're telling a two-year-old, oh, mommy and daddy had help because uh, we weren't able to do it on our own. That lays the groundwork, and then there was uh, mommy and daddy used. Uh, you could tell the story as you go, but the point is that if you start and you lay the groundwork at a very young age, it's simply not big news. It's just yeah. And quite frankly, younger children don't know that everybody. This is not everybody's story. They tend to believe yeah. that their story is everybody's. Well, and part of it, I think, like like we've been saying, is just generally talking about this. You know, I, I think that we all know someone who has struggled in some way to build their family, whether it be through infertility, female or male, through, you know, not finding the right person to partner with, and yet it still has a bit of a taboo. What I found so ha- so positive in a lot of our surveys was that people are talking about this more. When, in our last survey, the numbers shot up in terms terms of who knows about people's experience. 80% of our recipients are talking about this with their families. 30% are talking about it with extended families, so like, you know, cousins or, you know, aunts or uncles. 80% of people are talking about it with their good friends. 20% are talking about it with acquaintances, which I think is really brave because it isn't something that happens comfortably every day. I think it's fantastic that more people are willing to talk about this. And then, of course, you have people who will post on blogs and forums. About 5 or 10% of people that responded said that they had a blog that was open and or, or, or some, you know, a Tumblr account or something where they're known, they people know who they are, and they've talked about their experience. So that discussion is so important and really will help not only the people going through the use of donor insemination, but also the resulting children, that in time yeah. it'll make them more comfortable. It normalizes the process and it makes you right. exactly. What were those statistics again? You said 
uh, 80% talked about it with their friends. Family, with family and friends, yeah. Family and friends, okay, okay. Okay, so family and friends, and then 20% either with acquaintances. That surprises me. That's, uh, uh, yeah, that's, uh, you know, and it's, uh, again, I, I, do you, it seems to me that from the single women, absolutely, lesbian couples, again, because as we say, you're not really giving, this is no new, this is not new information. People are going to know that if you get pregnant, uh, that, uh, that you got sperm from somewhere. Right, right. Um, but uh, the but with a heterosexual couple, um, do you see a difference in their ability to disclose? And I guess the reason I'm asking is that I or we um, did, I did a blog uh, about three weeks ago on the where is the male uh, infertility fraternity because I had done a blog a couple of weeks before that or uh, the week before that I guess on the infertility sorority and uh, one of our audience uh, uh, on the uh, on Facebook uh, came back. At, it was a guy, and he said, uh, you know, although I'm really happy for the women, uh, there is no such thing as mm-hmm. a, a infertility fraternity for men. And then it was a wonderful discussion. In fact, it, we're still, it's still getting posts almost every day from men and women talking about the pain of silence associated with yes. male infertility. Um and acknowledging that you utilize donor sperm is another way, if you're in uh, a heterosexual relationship, another way of having to talk about male infertility. And it's mm-hmm. just so, it's such a taboo subject, um, and it's which makes the people who are suffering from it feel so alone. Right. And it's it's very sad because, you know, if we could open up that discussion, and we really do try to encourage disclosure, not... You know, obviously we're not going to mandate something like that, but it's definitely something that we support and encourage. And there are so many wonderful communities, even if you're not discussing it often and open with people that you know in the real world, there are online communities that really offer amazing support to men and women. But I do think you're right. I think that more often the women have more resources to choose from. Um, You know, as a sort of lead into the donor side of it, I will tell you that in our most recent donor survey, uh, fifty between fifty and fifty five percent of our donors, regardless of their donor category, anonymous or ID, ranked helping families um as high, if not higher, than compensation and why they considered being a a donor. And so many of them, fifty percent of our donors said that the one of the reasons they're donating is because they knew somebody who either had social or medical infertility and they saw how it affected their lives, either a family member or a friend. And so it really inspired them to say, if I'm healthy and I have good specimen quality, let me try to help somebody. So talking about it can be beneficial for you, obviously, as the person going through the experience, but it can also inspire other people to take action. Yeah, that's a, it's such a, you're right, and you don't really know before you, you don't know who you touch when, with your honesty, and it, it does take bravery. Uh, let me just pause right now to say that Creating a Family has the largest infertility and adoption communities on the social networks. Uh, you just heard me mention the one, the Creating a Family Facebook support group. Uh, you can also connect with me personally on Facebook, which is Davenport one uh, or uh, you can connect with our Facebook page, which is Creating a Family, and you can connect with all of those just by typing in the word Creating a Family in the Facebook search box, and then 
uh, liking the page and uh, joining the group. It is a uh, closed group, uh, but all you need to do is uh, click a request to join, and uh, you will be admitted. You can also reach out to us on Twitter uh, three ways, or two ways, I'm sorry, Dawn Davenport 1 or Creating a Family, in both of those. Uh, all right. Now, let's do talk some uh, about the donor, uh, on the donor side. Have you seen a shift? I, I think that one of the things that a lot of people believe is that the majority of donors are college students. Uh, mm-hmm. Is that true? Um, not in our case. I can't speak for every sperm bank, but in in for Fairfax, the majority of our donors are finishing college or graduate school or establishing their careers. The About 60% of our active donors right now, and this number hasn't changed much over the past year, are between the ages of 21 and 29, um, which is great for a couple of reasons. <laughs> They're in their prime for their health. Uh, which is really fantastic. And then they're also a bit more um, responsible, let's say, than a, a younger college student might be. And so they're completing the terms of their commitment with us um, really consistently. And, and we're seeing, you know, that level of maturity is definitely helping out. That's not to say that there aren't mature college-age gentlemen. Of course there are, and we do work with them as well. But working with the 21 to 29-year-olds has been really great, and we are seeing an increase in that age. About 20% of our donors are college-age, 18 to 21, 18 to 20, and then the other 20% are between 30 to 39. Um, and just as, just as some basic information, in order to be a sperm donor at an FDA and AATV accredited sperm bank, the donor cannot be older than 39 years old. Oh, okay. Or I'm sorry, cannot be older than he can't be 40 or or more. We will allow a guy to donate until he's 40. Gotcha. All right. So, what are some of the other? Oh, we we did get an email question. Let me make sure I get that sure. out too. This, she's asking me not to use her name, and I won't. She is worrying about the. She is a, a single woman. Uh, is uh, considering a donor sperm and is worrying about the health of the children conceived through donor sperm. She has read where there are health issues associated with sperm children conceived through sperm donation. Um, can you talk a little about uh, uh, about health issues associated with children conceived through uh, donor insemination? Sure. So the, the sort of starting point for that is really to ensure that the sperm bank you're using is doing all of the required, the minimum of the required testing. Um, Sperm banks are regulated by the FDA, and they can also be AATB, which is the American Association of Tissue Banking. Um, They can be AATB certified, accredited, sorry. Um, And those organizations have recommendations um, and requirements for testing. So at a minimum, the sperm donors are having a physical exam every six months, as well as infectious and genetic disease testing. The genetic disease testing obviously happens once your genetics don't change. So the, you know, almost all sperm banks are doing um, a karyotype, which is a chromosome analysis of your donor. Um, They're doing all of the major diseases that are are, um, more prevalent in in our population, cystic fibrosis, SMA. We do ethnically um, specific testing. So, for example, if if the donor is of Mediterranean um, descent like I am, they would be tested for thalassemia. Um, If 
you know, if they're French Canadian, they would be tested for Tay-Sachs disease, which is a slightly more, more prevalent in that population. So that's the genetic testing. And then the infectious disease testing is um, everything from HIV, hepatitis, HTLV 1 and 2. There are, you know, all of the tests that the sperm banks do are listed on all of our websites. Um, I can tell you that Fairfax goes above and beyond, and we we use nucleic acid testing or PCR, polymerase chain reaction testing, which is testing the actual DNA um, for uh, chlamydia, gonorrhea. You know, we're we're doing all of that additional testing to ensure that the sperm is safe. Now, in terms of um, the resulting children, th- that safety for the recipient for the mm-hmm. infectious disease testing, the genetic testing is obviously important for the safety of the child. Um, it is important to note that not every disease that has a genetic origin has a marker or a known mutation that can be tested. Many mm-hmm. diseases can't be tested for. And so there is approximately a 3% um, chance in the general population of any people, anyone, through natural or insemination, natural pregnancy or insemination pregnancy, uh, you know, resulting in a genetic issue with birth. Um you know, it doesn't change with a donor. It doesn't change between using, you know, your partner or a donor. Um, in fact, most people using donor sperm know more about the donor's medical health history, the donor's health history, family's health history, disease testing status, and genetics than they do about a partner. And so there is not... um you know, a higher risk with using a sperm donor. It's the same as using a a man in the general population, or which technically could be your partner. Yeah, well, that yeah, and actually, I would I would think that very few people, that very few people have any form of genetic testing uh, unless they experience infertility and then are moving into uh, so uh, moving into obviously you can option unless they have a family history. Uh, right. So, uh, but using donor sperm, you, the sperm automatically has gone through a certain amount of that. Uh, let me add that next week's show is going to be on genetic testing. And we will talk about all sorts of things. This is, oh, that's great. If you perked up your interest, then by all means, uh, tune in uh, next week. Uh, Dr. Mark Evans will be our guest. Um, all right. So, uh, so in answer to her question, uh, you've got. Uh, Either one would guess maybe a a slight bit less of a risk uh, from from the genetic standpoint because at least there would have been some testing and those uh, donors that might be carrying a genetic mutation would not be selected. I would say that there's a, a lower known risk, but statistically it's the same risk. Okay, gotcha. All right, um, what other things? Donor survey for that long, but what are you asking, and, and what are you finding out about? Uh, we know the age of the donors. We know from mm-hmm. the motivation standpoint. You said helping families ranked as high, about equal to uh, compensation. That's right, for the money right. or doing it for for helping. Okay. Um, um, one of. Oh, sorry. Go ahead, Don. Sorry. No, no, no. Please jump in. Um, what I was going to say is just in order to sort of paint a picture of the, the type of men that are, are donating, you know, we're looking at a population of men, about 65% of them, regardless of whether they're anonymous or ID, are in a, in a committed relationship. 20% of them are married. About 20% of our donors have children. Um, 
you know, in terms of their motivations, we've talked about them either knowing somebody, the compensation for the donation. You know, I get a lot of questions about that. Um, one of the things I like to point out is when we talk about compensation for their time and their travel and everything, people don't necessarily think about what it means to be a sperm donor. Yes, he's coming in, he's producing the specimen, and it doesn't take very long, and he's in and out of here. And every six months he has – or every – periodically has some blood drawn and a physical, and that's not that big of a deal. Um, but you have to think about the fact that in order to have a good semen specimen, that man has to have a certain number of abstinence hours. And so having 72 hours of abstinence does affect a person's lifestyle. It affects a relationship. And so that's part of what we're compensating for is the time that they're investing in in their participation in the program. Um you know, we're looking at guys who are living good, healthy lives. They tend to be very interesting and altruistic people. About 75% of our guys report that they were actively looking to become a sperm donor when they entered the program. The other 25% say, oh, we saw the ad and thought, hey, I could, you know, maybe I can do this. About 40% of our donors are donating blood fairly often. About 15% of them are donating plasma. So we're looking at guys that, you know, they're they're looking to contribute something to this world. And so they're donating sperm through us. They're working as a, you know, they're, they're doing um, the blood donation as well. And, you know, I can tell you, I don't work very closely now with the donors, but when I started, I was doing donor interviews and generally these are really great guys. Um, you know, they're, they're educated men who are interested in helping people and are, they have varied interests. We have donors who are science majors. We have donors who are, you know, have studied English. We have businessmen. We have scientists. We have um, people in the professions, psychology, medicine, um, firemen, policemen. So, you know, we're seeing that who they are really does does contribute to their decision to being a sperm donor. And we actually see that that does affect their choice of being an anonymous or an ID option donor. Uh, that's uh, how, uh, As far as men be willing to be uh, identified, um, it, do you have trouble finding men? Or do the majority of men prefer to be anonymous, or do uh, you have equal numbers uh, are open to being identified to the child at 18? It's not equal, and it actually changes over time. So um, I will say that there has been an increase in the interest of men who want to be known, as in the ID option program. Um, I would say that right now we're seeing about a 60-40 split, and, and that's reflected in our donor search. When you search for an ID option donor, um, you know, about 40% of our guys that are available are ID option. Um, what I will say is that, you know, as as a sperm bank, we value choice for our recipients and for our donors. And so there are people who are very interested in having an anonymous donor, and there are people very interested in having an ID donor. So we really work to provide both. If a man comes in, um, you know, as, to screen for the donor program, we present him with information about both programs. Um, I can tell you that in the of the guys who have participated as ID donors, about um, about eighty percent of them knew coming in that they. I'm sorry, thirty seven percent of them knew coming in that they wanted to be an ID donor. An additional thirty percent of them changed, not changed their mind, but decided to be an ID donor after 
discussing with staff, discussing with their family, doing some personal research because of information we provide them. Um, you know, I think education is important on both sides of this. We want the men who are choosing to participate in this program to be well educated about what it means. And so, you know, we are able to give them information about the ID option program. Um, the, the ID donors tend to be slightly older, um, and many of them are actually in a profession of helping health, science, research, um, psychology. Mm -hmm. uh if a donor uh, requests the information, uh, can he find out how many children have been conceived through his sperm? We don't actually release any information to the donors. Um, we will give them a yes or no, there has been a pregnancy or there hasn't been a pregnancy reported to us. But our contract, uh, our paperwork with our recipients states very clearly that the donors cannot reach out and find out any information about the recipients or the resulting children. But can they find out uh, uh, the numbers of children that uh, may have been conceived? In other words, I mean, one recipient, uh, the sperm from one recipient could be used by more than one family. So is that right? Is, is no, we don't. Um, we don't. We don't disclose that information to the donors. We will tell them, as I said, if if there have been, but we won't give a number. No. And and uh, one of the issues we did not get a question on this this time. Uh, but one of the issues that usually comes up is the question concerning uh, consanguinity. Did I just say that yes. correctly? The, the fear of, of children who uh, uh, both come from the same uh, biological father for the same sperm uh, right. meeting and, and, and later dating and marrying and producing children. Uh, so uh, and one of the issues surrounding that is um, but the geographic dispersion mm -hmm. of the sperm, as well as how many uh, uh, times a donor can either donate or how many people can utilize the sperm. Uh, so uh, anything, Matt, that you'd like to share these changes or how things are developing yeah. in that area? I will say this. I think the number one most important thing to consider is reporting your pregnancy and the birth of your child back to the sperm bank. It is through pregnancy and birth reporting that we can monitor and regulate the dis distribution of donors. We rely on that pregnancy data. Obviously, we have some internal mechanisms that we use to control the numbers. Um, I can tell you that Fairfax Cryobank has a limit of 25 family units in the, fam in the United States. And when I say family unit, that means that an individual or a couple can have multiple children using a donor and they count as one family unit because um, you're not worried about the co-sanguinity within one family. It's, it's exactly. within family. Yeah. yeah, I thought of that. And so, you know, I once we reach that 25 family unit number, we stop distributing a donor except for sibling pregnancies. Um, so as I said, the, the reporting back to the cryobank is so important, both in cases of you know, having a child's birth or if there's any adverse reaction, if there's a problem with the pregnancy, we want to know that. We want to know that information so that we can act immediately and responsibly and do an investigation and identify um, any action that's needed on our part. Um, but as I said, you know, the, the restriction in terms of geographically, we watch the numbers um, as well as just the overall 25 family units. Actually, it was I just checked. We had just received an email <laughs> to be saying we didn't get a question. Uh, we did just get a question, and I think you've okay. answered it. Uh, 
yeah, how many children are allowed to be conceived. So, yes, uh, we have just answered that. Well, Michelle, that does, as, as Dawn, all, I do just want to say, I'm yeah. sorry, that does differ from sperm bank to sperm bank. And, again, that's a question that, that you guys should, people should be asking if, um, yeah, you know, when they're looking. Point. Yeah, that is an excellent question. So, uh, uh for the person who just sent in the question as well as for uh, the rest of the audience. Uh, what uh, utilizes to make a list of questions, you can get some of this information on websites, but you will also need to call and ask specifically. Michelle, as always, I have enjoyed this. We have uh, reached the end of our time. Thank you so much, Dr. Michelle Adi, for being our guest today on Creating a Family. I will be blogging about uh, this topic uh, tomorrow, and so please, and I will include the highlights from this show in the blog. Uh, So if you'd like to chat about anything we've discussed today, please join uh, us on the blog tomorrow, creatingafamily.org slash blog. To get more information on Dr. R. You can go to the, uh, well, you can go to their website, which is fairfaxcryobank.com, or since they're a sponsor of Creating a Family, you can just, uh, their logo is on the right-hand side of actually all the pages. So you can just click on that. It takes you directly to uh, their website. We primarily keep in touch with our audience through our twice-weekly e-newsletters. We let you know the latest developments in infertility as well as the upcoming week's blog and show topic. So you can, to receive these weekly newsletters, sign up for them at creatingafamily.org. It's on the top left-hand side of any page. Or some people just want to send it in directly and request, and you can do that. Just info at creatingafamily.org. Thank you so much for joining us today. And I will see you next week when we're going to be talking about genetic testing. Thank you. Thanks, Don. Bye. Bye. Hi, it's Jamie, Progressive's Employee of the Month, two months in a row. Leave a message at the... Hi, Jamie. It's me, Jamie. I just had a new idea for our song about the Name Your Price tool. So when it's like, tell us what you want to pay, hey, 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 and the trombone goes, blah, 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 and you say, we'll help you find coverage options to fit your budget. Then we just all do finger snaps while a choir goes, savings coming at ya, savings coming at ya. Yes? No? Maybe? Anyway, see your practice tonight. I got new lyrics for the rap break. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. And now, an ad from Dad. All right, save money on car insurance when you bundle home and auto with Progressive. Can I take these off? All right. What is this? This looks good. Wow. That's what, man. Where did you get this? I'm talking to you with the hair. Yeah, where did you get this? It's good stuff. That's solid. That's not veneer. That's solid stuff. Progressive can't save you from becoming your parents, but we can save you money when you bundle home and auto. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company affiliates and other insurers. Discounts not available in all states or situations.